Welcome to this edition of Life's Tough. John Tesh is tougher. You know John. You may remember John as co-host on the TV show Entertainment Tonight from 1986 to 1996. Or you may know John as the touring musical performer, as a pianist. During a multifaceted music career, John has collected six music Emmys, two Grammy nominations, four gold records, seven public television specials, and has had eight million records sold. He's been associated with the Live at Red Rock series of live concerts. Perhaps you associate John Tesh with the John Tesh radio show, which John started in 2003. Then there's the Intelligence for Life TV series that John launched in 2014. You may even know of John as an investigative journalist on the CBS network. Or you could recall John as the broadcast host and music composer for the Barcelona and Atlanta Olympic Games. On the personal side, John Tesh was born in Garden City, New York, on Long Island. His mother was a nurse. His father was a textile chemist. At the age of six, John began playing the piano and trumpet. In high school, he was selected to join the New York State Symphonic Orchestra. John then went to North Carolina State University, where he initially pursued textile chemistry. After college, he broke into local radio and TV. He soon became a news anchor in Raleigh, North Carolina. Next career stops for John were Orlando, Nashville, and then WCBS-TV in New York City. John was on his way. Today, John lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Connie. They have one daughter, Prima. Connie also has a son, Gib, from a previous marriage. Let's welcome John onto the show. John, welcome. Dustin, thank you so much. It, it, uh, I'm exhausted listening to uh, what, what sounds like an ADD biography. I feel terrible. Like I'm saying I can't even compare to this guy, John Tesh. He's kind of a big deal. I'm kind of old. <laughs> John, how old are you now? 31, 32? I'm 67. You, you don't you age. Stay alive. Is there like some if secret? You stay alive long enough. What do you do? to? How do you not huh? age? Because every time I see you, you seem uh, to look younger. What's the secret? Listen, listen. In 2015, I was given 18 months to live. I, I, it, it, not, not a lot of people knew it at the time. Not a lot of people know it now. Um, I just finished my memoir. It's called Relentless, and it's in there. It's a it's it's a part of the of the uh, the autobiography. But uh, I did not look great then, um, and I had to, it's a it's a longer story. We can get into it, but um, I I do try to. I mean, part of what I'd love to talk to you about today is 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 process. You know, I I, I was up this morning, you know, at four o'clock, and from by four thirty, I was in the gym, and I hate it, and it's suffering, but. Um, I do think that keeps you keeps you young, or at least you know, puts uh, you know puts a little a meat on your bones. Yeah, and so John, how do you do this? How do you set goals? How do you prioritize, especially when you've got a lot of things maybe holding you back or a lot of distractions in your life? Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, look at the books, right? We, I mean, we do a, a radio and television show, and I've, and I've I've been a journalist for years in various forms. I mean, I chased fires for a while, but then I also did um you know some entertainment news obviously and some other stuff but um i, I so i have i really ha- i feel like i've decoded i call it decoding greatness I, I when i was a little kid in you know in junior high my very first autobiography was houdini you know the escape artist which is perfect for for a lot of the stuff that we get in and get out of um i i, I love autobiographies i love memoirs and these days the trend that we're seeing in books is managing your time, right? And, uh, and triaging your habits and things like that, because we have so many distractions. 
And so I, I work really hard at that only because we, when I was writing this book, you know, it's, it's a big part, a big part of it, putting it together is connecting the dots, going back and looking at things that you've done. And is that interesting to people or can that be useful? And you start to realize that, that I did anyway, that it was a process. Anytime anything good happened for me, I was working a process and I got that from my band teacher in garden city. So I'm not sure if it's staying organized because there are a lot of things that I, I switched, I switched tasks all the time, but, um, but I do try to stay in one lane in particular. And, and is this, did you have mentors around you to help guide you? And how did you find that this was right for your path? How did you make it? Studying other people, you know, it really, I, I, and being, and being left alone. I uh, had two older sisters, Bonnie, uh, who was 11 years older than me and Mary Ellen, nine years older than me. And I was born in 1952 on Long Island. And back in those days, your parents didn't know where your school was, right? They couldn't find it. <laughs> and we had a, you know, we had a, uh, a finished basement with, with some, I don't know why, but some tape recorders and eight millimeter camera there and a bunch of wires and things. I was always fascinated with sort of having my own, if you look back at my life, it's very easy to see what I'm doing now. It make, makes sense. But I was always fascinated with sending away for things and making radio, little radio stations and listening to the radio and, and, um, and even, you know, even television back in the nascent years, you know, when Cronkite was on and, and all of that. So spending a lot of time alone, you know, there's a guy named Lin-Manuel Miranda and he, he, uh, created in the Heights in 2018, the Broadway musical. And then of course the thing where he won the MacArthur grant, which was Hamilton. And he's been a family friend of ours since back in 2017. And you watch a kid, he's a kid, you know, compared to, mm -hmm. more than half, twice, twice his age, but you watch somebody like that and you watch the, you know, the, the focus and you hear him interviewed and it's the same type of thing where it's like, he was alone a lot. And, um, in, and he had met and his mentors happened to be people who wrote theater music. You know, my mentors were you know, athletes and musicians. And so that type of focus, I think was something that I was always after. Interesting. And did you find the more successful you became, that the less friends you would have? I mean, how did you, how did you find a way to, to really find a, a friend? I mean, being at the top is quite lonely. Well, I'm, I'm not, I appreciate the, um, the description. I, I've never really felt at the top. It, that's, and I think that's probably one of the keys is that when I was growing up, I, I was, I'm, I, I weigh 225 pounds now and I'm six foot six and a half inches oh, tall. Boy, Where were so you I in carry, high school? I, Protected me. Well, but yeah, but see, I, I, I actually paid for It's funny you mentioned that. I actually paid for protection. I <laughs> named Bill right? the van. He got, he got my lunch money every day. I mean, I mean remember this is Long Island. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, because I was, I was this height, six, six, and I weighed 152 pounds. Oh, you're a lightweight. So yeah. I didn't feel, yeah, I didn't fill in until like my, my junior year, senior year of, uh, of high school. So I was not popular at all. I mean, I, I, I had a, like a, I don't, I never had, maybe I had a half a girlfriend. <laughs> I never really had a girlfriend. <laughs> you knew a girl. I know a girl. It was, well, there was two, she was in the flute section of the band, right? <laughs> and I was the trumpet player. And so yeah. we were both super geeks. You know, we weren't ever going to try kissing, you know, and none of that stuff, you know, but mm -hmm. we went to the dance, we went to the dances together. It was, mm -hmm. it, it, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's some sort of a, of a film that, 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 <laughs> that, uh, has, has, were this, you a good uh, dancer, this, John? This I mean, just player. tell us the truth. Were you a good dancer? Yeah, no, no, no. But back in the back in the, it's funny we talk about this on on stage when we're doing our concerts. <laughs> back in the '60s, 
Um, so I would have been, you know, I, I mean, you know, 65, 66, you know, I, I was, I was in junior high, high school. Um, Saturday Night Fever and Pulp Fiction hadn't come out yet. So there were no dances that guys knew how to do. Um, you, it was slow dancing. And so you would always, you would always request a slow dance, like a 45 minute slow dance <laughs> from the, uh, from the band. And then being in a, being in a band, it was really funny because being in a garage band, um, at the time, uh, and I was just an unpopular organist, um, is a uh, keyboard player is, uh, you know, you had to have different, different versions of the, your songs. So in other words, we only had like six or seven songs, but for example, we knew in our band, we knew, um, I want to hold your hand, uh, nights in white satin and, uh, Hey Joe. Mm-hmm. And so we, we had to have different versions. So we had to have like a, for, for example, I want to hold your hand. Uh, fast. I want to hold your hand medi- medium, and I want to hold your hand super slow. <laughs> you like guys are struggling, huh? You're trying to figure this out. No, you, you imagine that song yeah. at like one, one third the speed. You know. Yeah. Um, do you wanna know a secret? You know, but but that they love those songs. It was it was slow. so I was very unpopular. So when you say you know when you're on the top, <laughs> I don't think anybody paid any attention to me until I actually started anchoring the news somewhere. And then that was like, what was that like, man? That, that must've been like, it, holy, it, like really weird. I'll tell you what it, yeah, yeah, I would tell you what it was like. It was like, and it first happened in Raleigh, North Carolina by, by accident. Um, and it, it was like being in the, it was like uh, a or whatever, Superman being, you know, being on the planet Krypton, right. And he's mm-hmm. just sort of a normal human being. He ends up on earth and he has superpowers. All of a sudden people were talking to me. You know, I would be at, I'd be at a restaurant and somebody would come up and say, or I'd be, I don't know, at a party or something. And, and a girl would ask me to dance. You know, that, that was this, that was madness. It must've been just um, overwhelming to yeah. say the, wow, like I'm, I'm somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And as, and as Spider-Man once said with great power comes responsibility. I, I, <laughs> I imagine it did. All of a sudden you realize everybody's watching you. Yeah, uh, and then and then your your your, your ego gets out of, out of the way. I remember do you, you know who John Stossel is. Yeah, of course. So John, yeah. So Stossel and I were we were we we were in the newsroom together. That I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway, this will give you an idea of of uh, of, of of false pride. We were we were correspondents together at WCBS, and we were 23 years old. I had just gotten there in New York, and he was he had befriended me. He said, "Hey, let's go out to lunch." You know, I'd only been on there there for like two two weeks. And so we're sitting there at this at this little uh, lunch place, and um, so all of a sudden I'm, I'm you know I'm getting we haven't been waited on yet, and I'm talking to Stossel, and the server comes over and, and is about to uh, you know about to talk to us. But before that, there are people at two or three tables that are pointing at me. I thought and sort of whispering and talking and pointing again, and I said to Stossel, I said, I said, wow, this is amazing. I've been here for like two weeks, and everybody knows who I am. And he goes, look behind you. And I said, oh, it was the, uh, on the chalkboard behind me was the menu. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you hadn't made it yet. You hadn't nobody made it past told, the menu. Nobody explained me at all. I, I think that's probably <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> but go ahead. That's, that's too funny. Uh, and so uh, Bonnie and, and Mary Ellen, like, what was it like for them to see their brother become, I don't know, I guess become recognizable and on TV? This must have been odd for, for the family life. Or did they embrace it? Oh, they they embraced it. They were great. Um, but they, uh, you see, when I was born, my mom, I, I had this, I have a feeling she wouldn't cop to it, but I have a feeling that 
my mom just said, Hey, uh, yeah, girls, you get, you get, I'll give you like five bucks. Can you take care of this for the rest of the year? (laughs) So I remember, I remember very little about my parents. I remember riding on the handlebars and and on the backs of boyfriends, motorcycles of my, of my, uh, my big sisters. Um, didn't do much for my baseball game, but that was one of the reasons why, uh, I ended up alone a lot because they would sort of, they dumped me off at the garden city pool and, and I mean, <laughs> I'd be, you know, struggling. In defense. Um, <laughs> that, but it was a, it. It, yeah, but it was, a, you know what it was a growing up on Long Island was, was a great life because I didn't, I didn't realize that the schools that I was in, especially uh, my, the elementary school was a performing arts school. And I didn't realize that until I got there, got to college. Um, and the, uh, you know, my, my band teacher, Dr. Thomas Wagner, I, I never even knew his, until I started writing this book, I didn't know, I had to look it up, I didn't know what his first name was, because it's Mr. Wagner. Yeah, you know? Of course. But he, he, taught, he taught us discipline and risk and courage. And I, I, when I look back, you know, as I was, I was writing this memoir, I look, I look back and I, I realized that the, everything that I do today, the risks that I, that I take and, and, the, and the deliberate practice, because deliberate focus practice, practice will get you, you know, everywhere. And that's, you know, the byline of the, or the subtitle of, of the book is Unleashing a Life of Purpose and Grit and Faith. And I think you probably should put persistence in there as well, because um, there's, there's a guy that I, I follow on YouTube. I listen to his stuff, and, he, and he, I remember he said something that stuck with me. He said, a lot of people miss an opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Well, you know, so. that's, it's so true. Very true. And I think we may, not to bash a, a generation, but I think we may be living in a place now where there's a little more entitlement than there was in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I, you know, I find that that seems to be a common theme. So I'm 36, that my my group or, or the people that I grew up with and around, that many of them do have that, that feeling as if uh, they, they feel entitled, where your generation was different. It was hard work. You work, you work, you, you don't complain. Uh, and you get it done. And do you think that that work ethic from your parents and, and your father's work ethic, do you think it it rubbed off on you or were you just always driven? No, I wasn't. Well, I was always interested. You know, I was interested in stuff. I took took things apart. I, um, I, I loved creating songs and things like that. But um, I didn't I didn't become a man. I was, I was, I mean, even my sisters would tell you, I, I was, I was pretty spoiled because, uh, my dad was vice president of Haynes, the underwear division. And, and he, he worked in Manhattan and he would come home to Long Island. We had a nice little house with aluminum siding. That was a real sign of wealth, you know, back then mm-hmm. we had the aluminum you, siding, you we had the big fan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, we had a nice lawn. And so, um, I, you know, I was, I know I was in a great school system. So I was, I was pretty spoiled compared to most people anywhere else in the, in the world. But when I got to college and my dad decided that I was going to follow in his footsteps, I wanted to go to, you know, when you're a junior, right? You're, you're, you, you, you announce to your parents, your, your road trip that you're going to take to visit all the colleges that you, that they may have to pay for. And when I did that to my dad, he said, no, no, no I've already, and I, I mentioned, uh, you know, USC music school. I had a partial scholarship to go to Kansas, uh, Kansas state to study uh, piano. And uh, I thought maybe, you know, maybe Interlochen or, or Berkeley. And he said, no, no, I've, I've enrolled you in North Carolina state university in textile chemistry. And I'll have a job waiting for you when you get out. And, I, and no, no matter how I protested, he was a world war two, uh, hero. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, no, no, this is what you're, what you're going to do. And I lasted for about 
uh, six semesters probably. And it was just terrible. I had like a 1.9 GPA. <laughs> it wasn't and no, it was, I mean, listen, it was quantitative analysis, organic chemistry, surface active agents, and statistics. And, and, uh, and I, was, I was okay at math, but uh, yikes. And I, you know, I was the kid that, that, that broke all the stuff in organic chemistry. But um, what, what happened was a friend of mine said, there's a, course, there's a course I'm going to take. I think you'll like it, and it's an easy A. And so he had my attention with that, and it was Radio and Television 101. And I got into that class and within, I say within 15 minutes, I was bit so hard by the bug that I just went right to the registrar's office and got drop ad cards hmm. and decided I was going to change my major without talking to my parents. Now, you know, my parents were, grew up on farms in rural North Carolina. My mom's house burned down with her, with her, she and her six sisters got out with their lives, you know, and, and they lived homeless for, you know, for a year. Uh, they were tough people, you know, especially my dad. And so, um, I went in and tried to get all the my professors to sign the drop ad cards, and everybody did except for the statistics pr- professor who said, "No, you're past the date, the the deadline. I'm not going to sign it." And uh, I went back to my dorm room, and one of my dorm mates said, "Wait, there's like 120 kids in that class, John. Just do what I always do." And I said, "What's that?" He goes, "Just sign sign the professor's name to the card, and you'll be fine. Move on." So <laughs> after uh, after a night at the Jolly Knave Pub, I said, "Okay, well, I'll do that." So I did that. And then long story short, after about a month when my report cards were supposed to come, they didn't come, but a letter from the chancellor of NC State came saying that I had broken the honor code and I was being suspended indefinitely, being given F for the course. And then when my dad, my dad got the letter and he threw me out of the house, he said, you're not welcome in my house anymore. So I had an old Volkswagen with a pup tent from my Boy Scout years and I drove to a park and uh, my parents were living in Winston-Salem at the time, two hours away from Raleigh where NC State was. And so I lived in a park for four or five months, pump gas and work construction. And like, um, like Hernan Cortez, I had burned my ships. I, my girlfriend, uh, bro- I had a full-time, full-time girlfriend at that point. My girlfriend <laughs> broke up with me. Uh, my friends were going to school. I didn't have any friends. You know, uh, I couldn't, I, w- I had been, I was a walk-on at, uh, on, on the soccer and lacrosse teams. I was banned from both of those teams. I couldn't play. Obviously I wasn't a student. And, uh, I realized after about four months, if I didn't do something drastic, that that was going to be my life. I was already starting to chew tobacco, you know, red man tobacco with the rest of the guys on the crew. So I, I, uh, I begged my way into the campus radio station and I made a demo tape, a fake demo tape, uh, to, to try and shop around to the stations around in Raleigh. And it was like, you know, I, I had, there was a little piano there and I made like a little, a little theme on the reel to reel tape recorder. And I did the traffic report, you know, traffic is reasonably heavy on the I 40 right now. It's beating my chest. Yeah. And then it's like, this is John Tesh. You know, let's go on, let's go down live to, uh, Maurice Gindy in Cairo. Uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger is uh, has said there's a possibility of peace in the Middle East, and then like, there's a possibility of peace, and this is uh, Henry Kissinger. I think there's a possibility of peace in the Middle. You know, it was it was the nuttiest thing you've ever heard, and it yeah. went on for like 20 minutes. I shopped it around to uh, radio stations, got thrown out of most of them, and there was a guy who said, "Well, you know, if if, if you want a job this badly." I'll give you a job playing the religious tapes on Sunday mornings from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. And I took it, and one day, Billy Graham, bless his heart, his tape broke in the middle of, uh, of me playing it, and I had an hour to fill. And so I did a show, <laughs> a radio show on the air. Uh, opportunity. Oh. You didn't pass it by. I know. Thank, thank you, Dr. Graham. And, um, yeah. 
and so I ended up uh, getting a job there. And then one thing led to another. I ended up on, you know, uh, developing the news film in Raleigh. And then, and then, as you said, Raleigh to Orlando, to Nashville, and then Nashville what, to New York City. What do you think about Orlando, there, by the way? That, that's where my family goes on vacation. Like, were you a big fan of Orlando? No, no, no. I just wanted a job. No, I, I, in fact, I, this is, it's, it's so, and it, the details on this are in, are, are, I know this sound, sounds like a promotion, but are in the book because you have to really read it to not to, be bored to, to listening to, to fully it. understand. It's so ridiculous because, um, and this is how I, this is why I always say this from the stage. This is why I believe in the Holy Spirit because I just got tugged in different directions when I was in, when I was in Raleigh, uh, I sent tapes out of me, uh, do it reporting and they, they, somebody in, at WFTV in Orlando, they uh, saw it, hired me for three times what I was making in, in Raleigh. And then months after I was on the air, a guy in Nashville who owned the Nashville station where Pat Sajak and Oprah Winfrey were working, he said, uh, young man, you're coming to work for me on the phone. And I'm like, who the heck is this? This is Irving Waugh, the president of uh, WSM-TV in Nashville. He, had, he was in Orlando to visit Disney world and was at a convention and he turned on the TV and I was on there. He said, I want that band to come work for me, you know? <laughs> so, so that's how he ended up. That's how it began. I mean, this is, you know, I, I find that in life when you, when you follow your purpose, that the next and the next just keep coming. And is that really how it's been for you, John, that you just keep getting surprised at what tomorrow brings? Yes. Um, but, and this is a, this was, this was a chapter that I really wanted to lean into because um, persistence, you know, persistence and grit and faith and all of that, but you have to be, and that's the name of the chapter, be found ready. you got to be found. There's, when an opportunity is there, we've seen that movie, right? I can't even think of one. There's dozens of them where the understudy has learned all the lines that everybody, everybody in the, um, in the cast, right? And all of a sudden the big star gets has a, has a drug and alcohol problem or, or it's a, it's, and a star is born, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're found ready. So you can't just sort of sit around and, 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 and pray to God to manifest a career for yourself. Um, when, when per persistence and grit and hard work, it, it, it just generates its own luck. But at the time I was from the moment I got that job at the, at the radio station in Raleigh, they had to kick me out of there because they only had, they only put me on the air for three hours a week. And I was busting tables at that point too. But I, I, I would just go out with a police scanner and I would find stories and I would call them in and they found this. We can't, you know, this is, we're going to get in trouble because we can't pay you for the hours you're working. So it was, I was interning, I turned myself into my own intern. And then when I was uh, at, at, at the Raleigh TV station, my job was, was developing the news film. That's how long ago this was. It was actually news film that was used for the breaking stories. They weren't really breaking. It took them, took an hour to develop them. That was my job. But when, but when that was over, I grabbed all the scripts that were in the, in the, in the wastebasket. I took them home and I practiced anchoring the news in, in my bathroom mirror. You were and I had learned that from a, from a friend wow. of mine. Yeah. So, so, so listen, one day the anchor, the young anchor man who was, uh, who was there in Raleigh, he showed up, he had a little too much to drink, and they fired him. And I was the only guy under 82 years old at the station. I didn't even have a sports jacket. I, I, we, I, the, guy, the guy who did the weather gave me his sports jacket. So he did, he did the weather in a shirt. And I, had, I mean, and, and then I, I did that for like four months. I sent a tape out to uh, a headhunter who I'd found it on TV Guide. And, and so I was always working an angle. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? You were marking but it, but a yourself. Lot of it, 
Oh, well, listen, I mean, to this, <laughs> I was on Facebook Live two days ago <laughs> myself, you know, reading a chapter of, uh, of my book. When you, when you truly believe in, in something, and there's another two chapters in this book about how I met my wife, Connie, uh, you know, one of the three, four most beautiful women in the world at the time and certainly now as well. And, um, and I stood her up on our first date. Uh, and it's and when women hear that at dinner party, it's like, why are you kidding me? I had a reason. I was scared out of my mind, but then I but then I won her back, right, with the same type of persistence and grit, and 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 faith that got me that 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 first job. But there was always that. There's always been that little kid in my head where braces and 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 acne and skinny and nobody's going to like me that pops out every now and then. I have to push it back down. And what kind of transformations have you experienced? as a couple, I mean, during your life together? That's a great question. I've never been asked that question. I, I would say, well, we're married 28 years now, and I would say the biggest transformation um, occurred, I mean, it's you know, when you have, when you have kids, I mean, I, I, we're a blended family, so I, I met Gib, uh, and you mentioned at the top of the, of the program, um, Gib was my stepson and became so at, at 10 years old, but his dad ended up not being as involved as he had planned. And so, uh, I ended up being his dad. So there was, there was dad and there was, you know, just trying to navigate that whole thing. Anybody who has a bunch of family knows. And then, but then we had a baby that that almost died. Um, but the biggest transformation I would say is when I was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2015 and the whole, everything just, I started making plans for who was going to replace me. What about insurance, whatever, everybody's crying. And it's, I had a rare form of prostate cancer that was starting to spread everywhere. And, and what happened was we went through all the treatments and, and my wife, she just, she's relentless this way. She just trains herself on everything. She likes being behind the curtain, but whenever you see a live show of ours, she's written half of it. The stuff that I say, she's, she's directs our PBS specials. Like you know, an she's amazing just amazing woman. And, and did this, she is a grandma. There's one thing is, is that, um, when we went through that cancer journey together, it was a lot of pain and suffering for both of us and, and out the, and, and some couples don't survive that. And, and we did big time. She sounds very strong. I mean, the, the fact that here, John Tesh, that this completely probably derails any future in your mind of where you're going, that the, the aspirations, I'm a dad. And, and yet she didn't give up on you and she didn't abandon the marriage. What was that like for you to see her step up when you were not at your strongest, when you were not at your best? I'll, I'll tell you, Dustin, it made me feel nothing but guilt. I, I felt, um, I felt like I was taking, I, I was robbing her and my family of all of their time. And, and there was, there, uh, there was a time when I felt so sorry for myself and, and, and I wrote this chapter called pity party where I just, I left the house and I went on a 92 mile four day bike ride just in the hot sun of you know, California. I was drinking too much. And, and I just, I, I, I just, I realized that I was just going to take the kettlebells that I love to exercise with, uh, you know, by the, by the pool behind our house and just, you know, take some, take some ties and stra strap them to my ankles because I love water so much and just jump in. Um, it, but it, most of it was because I, I knew I was causing my my family so so many problems. You know, it, it it didn't it didn't clean up, it didn't clear out until we got the last diagnosis where the cancer had come back. You know, three and a half years uh, after the original diagnosis and and all of the surgeries, 
and the chemo and the androgen dep deprivation therapy where they strip the testosterone from your body, when all of that stuff wouldn't kill the cancer, my wife and I started getting into training uh, for uh, biblical scriptures on healing, which uh, the foremost one would be Mark eleven twenty three. And once we got the revelation of that scripture, we quit treatment. And if I had if I had done that, if I had quit treatment, you know, at the beginning, I would I would have been a dead man. But we had been studying this 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 idea of divine healing, the promise that Jesus gave us at the cross, not only taking sins but also taking our our griefs and sorrows translated into sickness. And we, and we actually, with the help of the scripture, we manifested my, my entire body was healed and not only of cancer, but of arthritis and a bunch of other stuff, I, you know, back problems that I had. And the scripture, Mark eleven twenty three, is pretty simple, but it's powerful. And it's Jesus talking. And he says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will be done shall have whatever he says. In other words, words have power. And there's, you know, there's Proverbs 18, 21, which is death and life are in the power of the tongue. These, these are concepts that a lot of the people that we know, self-help gurus, so to speak, they use them. They don't give credit to the, to the yes, scriptures, they but they right. use them. Right. But you speak, you can speak life over yourself. Well, yes, you can. If you, if you bind that with, with faith, you can be healed. And that's what happened to me. Wow. That's, that's a fascinating story and a story of not just somebody that was, um, surviving, but you went, you went from surviving to thriving. And, and it seems like this, this moment in your life, not only humbled you, but it made you stronger and made your relationship with, with Connie stronger in the end. It's true. It's true. And you know, that you, you mentioned that she was, she was a, a strong person. She's an Italian from the Bronx. So, the strong gets out of control sometimes, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and I I said to her the other, I, I said to her the other day I said, honey, do you mind if I drive every once in a while? <laughs> <laughs> she give it up and she said, yeah, sure. No, she said she said she said okay if you think you're a better driver than I am, then you can drive. I said no, I, I don't think I'll fight that battle. Here. <laughs> you know, and and I found because I've got a memoir coming out that memoirs require you to be honest with yourself. Um, that it is quite a process you go through, uh, where you, you have a lot of shame, you have a lot of anger, bitterness, resentment. What did you find out about John Tesh? What did you find out about you through this process? Well, I, I know a bunch about you, and I'm, I'm anxious to read the memoir because, uh, you know, talk about uh, against all odds. I mean, you have you've gotten on the other side of some really scary, intense, intense stuff. Um. And I, you stopped me there. I mean, I stopped myself. What was your question again? I was saying that this, this process, the, the memoir requires you to dig, dig in your past, yeah. dig up everything, yeah, yeah. old yeah. wounds, create new ones. Um, it, it is a lot on one's mind. It's a lot on the body. Uh, what did you learn about you? What is the thing that kind of shocked you, yeah. surprised you the most? You're like, I can't believe, or um, were you proud yeah. of as you looked back? Yeah, it was... Um uh, gratefulness, I think, is probably it made me want to call everybody in my life that 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 loved me into into success and existence, um, because I've always been, and I think it's because my dad never really held up one of my trophies. I, I'm not I'm not doing the whining thing about my dad. My dad was he he was a self made man. He was a World War II veteran, like I said, a hero. He was he he was on an amphibious assault craft off the coast of Okinawa. Wow. Um, and he was, and I won't say, but, and he was the guy who 
would drag me out of bed and they were having a party and I'd be, you know, 12 years old and he'd drag me out of bed at 1130 at night on a school night and say, say, Hey, I'm playing for these piano lessons, play something, you know, or, you know, I'd come home with a B and he'd say, where's the B plus. Um, I actually mentioned in the book, you, I'll bet you, you've seen this movie. Have you seen Robert Duvall in the great Santini? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's a movie that, that uh, anybody who's had, had an interesting relationship with their dad needs to, you know, needs to see. That was that that was my dad. He was he was a he was a tough guy, and he he administered corporal punishment. But but looking back on it, I guess you know for me, my my childhood was nothing like yours. It wasn't as rough as yours. But uh, but going back, it was just I say in the book too. I say my dad was strict. He was Baptist strict. He was farmer strict. You know and. And, and, and he was, I knew where the line was. So it was my choice. And sometimes the line was, it, it was pulled in a little tighter if he'd been drinking. And yeah. it was worse for my sisters because my sisters were, they were, and I'm surprised they weren't, they didn't hate me for it, but cause I was the, you know, the only boy, but my dad was crazy against their boyfriends, you know? And it's really the funniest thing is that my dad was a racist. That's just not funny. But my dad was a racist and a, and, and a bigot. And we knew that. And we and nobody in the family was. We were just we just didn't understand that. But he grew up. By the way, my, my, mine too. So I can understand where that comes from. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah that was a very, it was a, it, it was a popular thing for some, for some mm-hmm. dads back then. So my, what happened was one of my sisters married an African-American guy. And the other, my other sister married a Jewish guy. And then I ended up for about four months going out with Oprah Winfrey in Nashville. So my dad, my dad got healed of racism <laughs> and bigotry <laughs> all, yeah, in all one day. You, you were, you're with, he was done. Wow. And yeah. your time with Oprah, this last, oh, a day, a week, a month. How long were you guys hanging out? We were, a, we were correspondents, uh, at actually at separate TV stations. She was in channel, uh, five in Nashville and I was at channel four. She was 19. I was 21. And great. I mean, listen, it's easy for me to say this because she, she had the reputation for, you know, back in Nashville, there was an hour's, one of the few markets back in the, in the early seventies where there was an hour's worth of news every night. And she, they, sometimes she had to fill like 20 minutes at a garden party and she was unbelievable. She could interview anybody, you know, we were all like, wow, what is with this? But we were, we ended up covering city hall and a bunch of stuff at the same time. Then we would go out to lunch and I asked her out to dinner a couple of times and, and we would, uh, we were really, really close. It wasn't like, you know, a classic you know, dating situation, but I guess it was, we were, we were really fr- good friends and we were close. Um, but what happened was you're talking about, um, you know, the South in 1974, um, we emptied out a couple of restaurants because people did not want to be in a restaurant with a, a white man and a black, a black woman who were at, at having dinner together. And, um, and it became a funny, again, it's not funny, but, but we, um, we, we didn't back down. We just kept emptying restaurants. Good for you. <laughs> so she's got a good, she's got a good sense of humor. We, we went out to dinner a lot. Wow. And your ancestry. So you talked a little bit about your dad through this process of your memoir. Did you look up any of your ancestors? Who they were, where they were from. Yeah, that's that's great. Whoever asked that question, that's a great question. That's my style. Um, that's and, what I do. I get in your head. I want to figure out I like did. who is John Tesh. I did. Um, well, uh, yeah, it's so weird because one of my on my on my grandpa's side, there's three greats, great, 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 whatever it was, uh, was a conscientious objector um, in the Civil War. 
and when ended up being jailed. And then my other grandpa, on the other side, was a was a bugler in the Confederate Army. Really? And the wild thing about that is that is that I was I, I was the bugler, and without knowing this, I just found Music. this out like two years ago. Music I was Music is in your background. It's in yeah, your, I was the bugler in, in yeah in our. Uh, in our um, Boy Scout troop, Troop, uh, troop 80 in, on Long Island, I was the bugler. I was the troop bugler, so I knew, I knew all those uh, those tunes and everything. And then um, I think I probably would, if, if I, in fact, had gotten drafted in Vietnam, I probably would have been a conscientious objector. I mean, th- so think about how fascinating that is that your ancestors, the, the, the traits that you have inherited, where you've got this musical talent where you see the world differently and you, you walk up and you go, I, I, I can do this. Um, how far back were you able to trace? Um, three, well, I don't know, I think it was grandparents. So great, 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 great grand grandparents on either, on, on either side. Most people and, have uh, never dug that far. And it's fascinating to me. Yeah. That's I did the ancestry, uh, last year and to figure out where I came from, I went, you're kidding me. I, 67% was from Scotland. 30% was from Ireland. Oh yeah. German. Like yeah, this they, isn't what I was told. Me. I was lied to. Yeah. Same for me, but my, my ancestors settled in the in the in the south. So most of most of my ancestors were uh, were farmers, uh, which is and my wife just thinks that's hilarious because I I could probably rewire your Macintosh computer for you and 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 I could I could edit any video that you wanted or or mix a mix an album, but I I can't <laughs> fix anything around the house. And my dad. My dad was so good at that because he grew up in that environment. Yeah, that's my wife reminds me. Please don't touch it. Let's just call somebody. I'm like, I'm good. And she goes, you're good at the computer, but I can't have you go fix something. And stay away from the garden. Oh, I wish my wife yeah, I wish my wife would say call somebody because <laughs> she just fixes it herself. Yeah, and, and so your faith, it's, it's not just important to you. Um, it is your life. And has it always been or was there a moment where I call it the aha moment where you had the uh, aha um, and everything changed. Yeah, I've had a couple of those. I know it sounds weird because uh, anybody who is a Christian would say, um, well, you can only be born again once. But um, I grew up in the church. Both my parents ran the church. I had two uncles who were Baptist preachers. And so and I, I was in the choir. I was in the band in church. And so I lived in the church. It was three or four days a week. Um, and I, I memorized scriptures. I got my God and country award. I got confirmed, you know, all the rest of that. I didn't, I didn't have any, um, church for me was being yelled at by the, by the pastor. And so when I got to, uh, and church camp every summer. So when I got to college by myself, um, I, I stopped going to church cause it didn't, there wasn't anything passionate about it for me. And then I took a course on religion thinking I would reignite my faith. And I took the course and the whole course was about what the, the professor was an atheist and the whole course was, uh, was, was decoding, uh, what's wrong with the scriptures and the fact that Christianity, uh, belief in God in particular is nothing more than a way for us to explain things that we don't understand. And that science says there is no God. And so, and that just, he made a great case and you weren't, you weren't allowed to argue with the guy. It wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't a back and forth. It was a, it was a class, a lecture. And so, uh, I went, yeah, I went South for a long time. In fact, all, all through, and I wasn't, I wasn't anywhere near my, my family either because my job, I kept changing my job so quickly, at least opportunities where I ended up in New York and, you know, I didn't know anybody was going to church or praying or anything. 
And so um, I didn't get reinvigorated until I met Connie, my wife, in, uh, in uh, 28 years ago. She was going to a small congregation, a Messianic congregation, which is Jews and Christians together, and I ended up working with the music ministry there. But um, I didn't fully understand what the, what the promise of the scriptures was without doctrine until I got sick. And that was, it was all I had. It was all I had left. The doctors had done everything. And the only thing I had left was, was my faith. So it's a, little, it's a little weird because if somebody says to me, I mean, I'm getting ready to do the, for example, the Today Show in like, in like two or three weeks here. And, and if they were to ask me, um, well, are you, are, you, are you, have you always been a Christian? Are you a Christian? I don't identify as a Christian only, only because this is really If you take that out of context, it's like, yeah. oops, but, um, only because it, 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 there's so much baggage that comes along with it. There's judgment, um, there's ex- exclusivity and, and, uh, and there's doctrine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do describe myself and it sounds goofy to some people as, as someone who is in relentless pursuit of the word of God. And so if it's, if it's not, in the word of God, if it's not, if it's not a promise or, 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 uh, or it's not written. And even Jesus said that when he was battling with the devil, he never, he never argued with him. He just said, it is written. If it's not in there, then, then, uh, then it's not me. That's what I strive for. And because that's what got me healed. And so, you know, on Sundays, we don't go to church. Uh, yesterday, uh, Sunday, uh, we last Sunday, we were in a, where we are all the time. We were like, like six, six or seven of us who have been healed of cancer. We were in a subacute facility, which is a terrible nursing home where everybody's on a tracheotomy and we were laying hands on the sick. We had people recover just, just the other day. We had a woman and it took, you know, it took six months, but she recovered, you know, and, and was not expected to live. Same thing with Connie's mom. So that's really what, when you say, you know, faith or, or your Christian background, it is a, it, it's a belief in, in the truth that's in the Bible. And you've seen it and your relationship with Connie, um, how have you stayed together? I mean, 28 years with fame must come a lot of temptation. How'd you do it? How have you guys stayed together? Yeah. Um, it's not, we, we, she, she is, um, listen, she lived her life as a famous actress and also as a, uh, as a model, but that's just not who she is. You know, she's, she's a mother and, and now a grandmother foremost and and does not you know when she gets invited to come on some of these um interviews and excuse me tv shows with me that's not something she's interested in doing she's interested in the ministry that we both both have together but say again i said that's remarkable oh yeah it is it is she's a very she's a very very different person um and and the other thing about that is uh i mean you've landed on something here is that we realized that because of the traffic in Los Angeles that we would get 78 hours of my life back uh, every week if we put our radio uh, our, our radio and uh, recording studios and also television studios on our property in our house, and then we built a little, little a studio great, next to great it. Great idea. But, but it, it is a great idea, but we, Connie and I literally spend 24 hours a day together, you know, and, and some people wouldn't be able to do that. But, um, but we may, we, I mean, our offices are next, next to each other and we make it work and say, hey, sure, there's, there's, there's bickering and, and there's, you know, me leaving stuff around and, and, 
Um, you, you, you have complaints, you know, about just normal things about other, another human being being so close to you, but you learn how to triage those. You, you learn how to not, well, I mean, triage is a good word. What's important, what's not, you know? And, and the other thing is, is it, is it Dustin, she's hilarious. And so <laughs> she it, laughing, I mean, huh? she's, she's so unbelievably funny. And and so is Gib, and Gib works with us in the in the house too. He's also on the on the radio show. So I mean, thanks for the for the, for the great question. But it's we don't we don't go to parties. I mean, we just Hollywood parties, and we have some some really close friends, um, and some of them have worked in, in Hollywood. You know, we're we're in we live in the woods, and we're surrounded by people yeah. that are um, you know what you know Charlie Sheen is a hundred yards away, Paris Hilton, you know the guys from Kiss or, or just over the, over the side of the road. I mean, they're, they're all here. Right. And we run into them at Starbucks and you see Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty and all those guys. But, um, they seem pretty normal too. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're just people. It's interesting. This dichotomy in life and here you are, you grow up, uh, your dad is uh, a, a chemist on the underwear side of EP to yeah. now yeah. you're, now you're on the radio. Now you, you have a TV show and now you you are somebody and now this new stage of your life you're motivating people to show people and tell people that you don't have to quit you don't have to give up um, and then if, if you don't have something to hold on to if you don't have your faith you won't make it you won't survive yeah yeah, yeah. you know you know dustin i'll tell you uh i don't know how you feel about uh about jordan peterson you know who he is i do know the name yep so Jordan Peterson is a is a uh, clinical psychi- psychologist, and and uh, he got into a, got into a spat with uh, with University of Toronto, but um, but it uh, it actually catapulted him in, in, into uh, into speaking engagements, you know, three four thousand people a, a, a night, and and he his his ministry, so to speak, is to people. A lot of times it's, it's young men who, who are just, they're in the parents' basement, they can't find their way, they're playing video games, they're drinking or doing drugs, or too, and they've just gone into neutral. And what happens when, according to Peterson, and I agree with this, what happens is that it becomes discontent, that it becomes anger, then it can become malevolence. Mm-hmm. You know, he actually, he actually has, has connected the dots to uh, Columbine and other, uh, you know, other disasters, you know, yeah. like that. You know, at the hands of of young disenfranchised um, malevolent men. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I bring him up is that he, like M. Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, he said the number one thing that you have to embrace in this life is that it's suffering. It is hard. It's it, and and if you go in expecting what's my path to happiness, that's that's really something that's going to burn you down. Because the first the first line of Scott Peck's book. Road less traveled was, it is life is difficult. Period. That's it. That's what we call like, this show. Life's it, tough. Life's tough. You can be tougher. Right, right, right. But if you come in, and and if you come and say, "Why me? Why this? Why did this happen to me?" and you start, and here we are, we're going to go, we're going to go back into the scripture. You start speaking death over yourself. You'll have that. Your brain will hear that. You know, Holy Spirit will hear that. And so the the people that are positive and the people that just keep going. I mean, listen to Jocko Willink, you know, the ex Navy SEAL has a podcast, you know, mm-hmm. just, just keep going. Just don't quit. Don't quit one foot after the other. You know, it sounds, sounds goofy, but it's, it's really the only way through because if you don't embrace the fact that, that since the, since the fall, that it's, there's, there's evil in this world and there is suffering, then you'll never, you'll, you'll, you'll never embrace it and you'll never conquer it. Well said. And where can we find your book, John? 
Um, it is uh, hopefully in bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Do they still exist? I mean, are there still bookstores out there? Yeah, no, yeah, right, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, yeah. The usual places, you know, like uh, Kindle, and I and I read the book. Are, are you going to read your memoir? I've, I, I'm kind of nervous about it, but yeah, you got to do it. You oh, have to do well, it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it when. Yeah. Well, and and listen, here's the this this is good advice I think for anybody. Um, I mean, you know, obviously you're a writer, but um, but Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing, and everybody thinks, oh, it's just a it's just a manual about writing. It's not. He writes his. I read it three times, listened to it twice. He 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 wrote his memoir about growing up, and it's just some great stuff in there. And then and then he reads it right, and then at the end, there's some stuff about how to be a writer. You know. Um, but uh, it's, I, I really hate it when people have a memoir and somebody else reads it. It's not easy to do. I just did it like two weeks ago. Uh, I read it and Connie helped me. She was one of the, one of the directors on it. But yeah, it's not, it's not easy because you can't, you, you can't get, you can't have this conversation, right? You, you really just have to, you have to, you have to keep an even tone. And, you know, it's like, like, for example, you know, it's like, then I grab a chair next to Michael's in the control room and start writing my narration for the first three completed segments for the Tour de France. The control room is now an ear-shattering cacophony of spinning tape machines. And you got to do that for like yeah. seven hours. I mean, <laughs> it takes four hours to do it, right? Yeah. But, but people don't want to hear all the, oh, this is great. Because it'll wear them out. <laughs> of course. And, well, look, look at the journey you're on. You finally reached the stage in life where you know, I, I was ready to finally tell the story, where you could be honest with yourself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing how many people around the world that – uh, you're able to touch uh, that that know you and if you've left an impact on, on so many lives and that kind of leads into my next question for you is that people around the world have reached out to you emails fan mail um, what's that experience been like to know that you have left such an impact on so many it's a responsibility you know it's it, um, because I, I don't I mean, I guess I've never really felt worthy of the uh, of this of the great things that have that happened to me, including including my 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 family and how that all came together as as well. So uh, I and I was when I was when I was spinning in the in in the world of accomplishment. So from when I was you know nineteen and a half years old until all the way through Entertainment Tonight and then beyond Entertainment Tonight as a full-time touring musician, I didn't think about any anything but myself. And I ended up in a, in a failed marriage because of that. And once once uh, I met Connie, she hit the brakes on that and just said, whoa, if you're interested in me and the family and everything, we need to have a conversation, you know, about that. And, and, and we worked it out and it's, and it's been even more rewarding. But, um, I, I love when people come to, cause I, I know how to be a fan. Um, when I remember when I interviewed, um, uh, Garth Brooks and he, it was a three hour interview and, and we were sitting on a porch and he was like a, like a jukebox just playing every Billy Joel and Elvin Johnson, possibly and all the country songs. Wow. And I said, I said, what's the secret to success? And he said, I know how to be a fan. I, I'm, I'm a fan of this artist and that artist, and this, and it's true. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of progressive rock, so I go see, you know, Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and, and Jethro Tull, and and then a lot of jazz artists and stuff like that. So I, I have, I think I have a feel. I didn't grow up being a famous, you know, kid musician or an entertainer. So I think I know what what happens when people are like, I want to know more about this, or or I, I'm following this person. So I, I just, for example, I just had um, a kid show up at one of our jazz concerts in, in Seattle 
and he uh, he had picked his seat so that he could see my hands, which is just such an uh, it's a, it's a withering, honoring thing for when you find somebody uh, I find somebody does that, and then after the show he, st- he stood outside the door, and and just said you know can I play for you. And, and, and wonderfully, you know, I have a, a manager who's just, he's just like me. He's like, you know, I, he would never turn anybody like that away. And so he brings this kid in and the kid sits down and for an hour, he plays my entire, one of my entire albums. Wow. Um, yeah, he learned, he had learned how to play every song. What a privilege. And it, it, better than me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was a little embarrassed. One of them I didn't even recognize. It was so good. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that it's a, it, I've had so many people do that for me that that it's easy just to say, "Hey, take a take a breath and understand that somebody may want a piece of you, and it could it could uh, it, it could end up real." And, and you know, the other thing is, Dustin, you when your when your when your book comes out, and certainly this podcast, you can be a long distance mentor to somebody, and they and you may never even know it. You know, I, I have, there's plenty of guys who encourage me, and I watch them on YouTube all the time, or I read their books, and they're huge, huge. Or I went to you know, like a promise keepers concert or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. huge mentors to me, but I've, I've never really called them up and just said, you know, you changed my life. So it's, 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 it's wonderful when somebody actually shows up and does that for you. It, it really is. And what I found is one of the downside, I guess, of having people know you around the world is that some people can be a little too interested in you or a little too over the top. Um, that must be quite scary at times or throughout your, your career of having people a little too obsessed. It doesn't really happen to me, uh, but it does happen to my wife. Um, she, um, you know, she, see, the thing about me is that I was on the news, right? And then, and I also, you know, when I, in my, in my concerts, I, I talk a lot and like, like this and, and talk about my life. And so people feel like they can, they can come up and, and talk to me after the show and they can, or stop me in the yeah. street and say, Hey, John, yeah, well, even today I'll walk down the street in New York city. Um, you know, I, I left, the news there in 1982 and cops you know, old cops will tell me, Hey Johnny, what's going on? Come over here. You <laughs> so know, cool. that kind of stuff. It, 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 yeah. It's, it's that kind of, but you wouldn't do that to Cronkite and you wouldn't do that to probably wouldn't do that to, uh, Van Clyburn or Billy Joel or, 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 you know, Bono. Um, but it's, uh, so I, I've sort of lived an approachable life, but, but the, the people that, um, actresses in particular, it's, it's, it can be a dangerous place for them when people obsess about them. Absolutely. And then final question, we always ask everyone that comes on the show, who's the toughest person or the toughest people you've had in your life? Who, who were they? To- to- uh, I think it's, a, it's probably, yeah, I think it's probably a, uh, a, a tie, um, with, uh, my, my dad was, was in- incredibly tough and, and he could be. I'm not sure if I want to use use the abusive word. I think I just did, but um, he he could be a little over the top when it came to to punishment, and it was it wasn't too bad for me, but it was definitely bad for my for for my sisters. But he was tough, and had he not been tough, had he not thrown me out of the house when I broke the uh, honor code at NC State, I'd probably be making underwear right now. You know? <laughs> um, and then the other the other tough guy is. Um, Dr. Thomas Wagner, the the uh, New York State, twice New York State uh, Teacher of the Year, who happened to be my teacher, my music teacher, and I got a chance to to perform for him a couple years ago when he uh, when he was 94 years old. Um, he was tough, but he was tough with it. He, he demanded risk, he demanded uh, boldness, 
and and he demanded uh, uh, persistence and 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 grit. But he had a he had a wonderful way of doing it. But it was but you would not you wouldn't get out of his class until you completed what what what, what he wanted you to complete for the for the day. So that that toughness, like I, the process that he taught me in, in in band and orchestra, I use in everything I do today. Wonderful. Well, you heard it from John Tesh. Life's tough, but Dr. Thomas Wagner was tougher. Thanks again, John. So that wraps up our show for today. Thanks again to John Tesh for making this another outstanding episode of our Life's Tough podcast. And thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant and fastest growing shows around. Also, special thanks to my dear friend Gerald Levin, Life's Tough chief writer and my Sherpa, and to John Miller, our executive producer at the Alston Carlisle studio. You already know life is tough, and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com pfinancial.com to learn how Carl can help you get tough on business. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience to the person who lived it. Their story can seem just as powerful as any other. I ask you to use your story to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment. An instance where that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestuff.com and be sure to join us same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story, and every story is a purpose. Life's tough. You can be tougher.